Welcome to Kid Tech, the podcast that goes behind the scenes of the people uh, who are shaping the digital kids media ecosystem. Today, I'm really, really pleased to be sitting down with Nancy McIntyre, who's CEO of Sandbox Kids. Um, Sandbox Kids is one of the leading providers of uh, digital content services for kids and family worldwide. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. Previously, she was founder and CEO of Fingerprint, uh, which was recently acquired by Sandbox, uh, kids and education media company. Nancy, so, so nice to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks for having me. I uh, Here's a fun fact. I started Fingerprint in 2010, and you and I actually met in New York in 2011, and you were beginning to execute on your global domination plan. And I really wish I'd listened harder at that point. Oh, no. I mean, for, so for, for everyone listening, Nancy and I sit down sort of, you know, pretty frequently whenever we're in the same city and we sort of compare notes about what's going on in the kids' digital space. I honestly think we should, we should either start our own um, podcast series, Nancy, or maybe we should write a book together or possibly even both. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> That's my next career. Um, let's actually let's 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 go back to to that sort of timeline and let, let's talk about fingerprint so can you like can you tell everyone um you know how fingerprint began you know why and, and what was the vision yeah so picture this it's it's 2019 and sorry tw 2009 and um the iphone has just come out and I'm running product innovation and marketing at LeapFrog, the educational toy company. And my biggest concern as the head of product and marketing at LeapFrog is Nintendo, because you know there's the fighting the kids are getting older, younger dynamic and kids moving on to Nintendo and skipping right over LeapFrog. That's my concern. But the iPhone has just launched and it feels like every time I go into a restaurant, I see a mom handing a phone to a two-year-old. And the conventional wisdom at that time was that nobody would give a phone to a, a $600 phone to a two-year-old. But in fact, I realized kind of in an instant that the that mobile phones were going to change everything because every mom with a phone in her pocket would be our competition and Nintendo was going to seem like nothing, you know, um, then. And uh, I, I just really saw that that the idea of dedicated gaming devices for kids, whether was was probably not going to be the future, but but I also thought that the phone was going to change and the app store was going to change how parents thought about how content for their kids like it was a no risk proposition to download an app and it was a no risk proposition to do a free trial and so I sort of saw the the change in the parent dynamic, the accessibility of content, the no risk association with getting the content and realized that I wanted to, I wanted to be there. And at the same time, this is also like the beginning of Netflix, right? And so, you know, Netflix had come out in 2007 with its streaming service. And I, I sort of put two and two together in my mind that like, I'm not going to fight it out in the app store one app at a time. I'm going to come up with a, a platform that can aggregate kids apps, can track what those apps are doing and feed it back to the parents. And it can be sold on a subscription basis so that much more like a platform, if you will, than going into the app business. And so 
you know, the idea for fingerprint was born and I uh, left at the end of 20, 2009, early 2010 to start fingerprint. And um, because I'd never been an entrepreneur before and I knew nothing about raising money, I decided, but I knew a lot about how to work with corporate strategics. I trotted myself around to THQ and Activision and other game companies and media companies and ended up raising the capital to build a kids platform. And the rest is kind of history. I mean, it was a remarkable uh, journey that you went on from that point. And I suppose, I mean, I'm, uh, we'll cover the intervening um, right. period, but you were recently acquired by Sandbox, uh, the kids media company. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how it came about? Yeah, I, you know, um, like you, I had known Bob Singh, the founder of Sandbox for, I don't know, five or six years. We'd had many, many conversations about how fingerprint really fit into the Sandbox ecosystem. And because we had built a platform that could aggregate content and Sandbox was buying companies that were content companies that could go within the fingerprint platform, we'd always thought that there could be an interesting marriage there. And so, you know, after multiple conversations and as Sandbox began to grow by, you know, I think they've acquired 13 companies in the last couple of years and they're both in the kids gaming vertical as well as the education vertical and then the youngest kids, we began to see that it really made sense to think about how we could put these companies together. So, um, so there was the formation of the kids vertical, which is of course called Sandbox Kids, which is Hopster, which is a, a primarily video content platform for youngest kids, like really starting at age one. And then Curious World, which is a preschool fun learning platform with games and videos. And then Fingerprint, which is, you know, our primary product is Kodomi, which really goes for ki from kids, you know, four to 12. So grade school kids, which is really a platform that can, can aggregate games, books, apps, video, music, podcasts, all into one sort of super app. So you can imagine as the company grows, we'll bring new content companies and new businesses into that platform and sell it really as a suite of products. And so, you know, today I think more about our business, like um, a parallel might be Amazon Prime Video, where you've got own content as well as multiple channels all living within one experience and then distributed anywhere that kids content is sold. So app stores, direct to consumer, the web, TV, uh, pay TV companies, mobile carriers, et cetera. You know, when I saw um, that acquisition being announced, uh, I, I thought, wow, you know, the combination of Nancy and Bob, this is gonna turn into a real media empire. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, and I think it's, you know, you and I have often talked about sort of aggregating in the space and, and, and sort of rolling up these opportunities. I mean, do you think that, the, the the sort of the, the the next Nickelodeon, the next Disney, is is really much more of a like a portfolio approach of different kids' experiences because it's often so so difficult to scale individual kids' experiences globally. Like do, 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 like I, I guess my question is: Is this the the platform that you're running today? Is this sort of 
very, very specific, or is this really a blueprint for what the future of, of kids media companies looks like? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, traditionally, when you think about kids media companies, you think about Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, um, uh, and you know, in today's world, you think about Roblox, Minecraft, Fortnite, um, you know, or ABC Mouse, etc. So you, so the most valuable kids media companies today are ones where the brands are, you know, front and center and, you know, they, they are selling essentially one meaningful experience across their brand. Like those have been the biggest exits and the things to date and the things that have been the most exciting. I do think though that um, there is a place and the thing that I'm the most excited about is the idea of aggregating best-in-class kids' experiences, kids' products and services together, and bundling them up and selling them, and um, you know, which is really what we're doing at Sandbox, because you know there are so many subscale businesses out there that have made fantastic products, but because of resources or lack of you know distribution, etc., they haven't really gotten any gotten to the scale that you would expect. And so I really believe that there's there's the potential to roll these businesses together. And as we get scale with subscribers, we will begin to make original content. We will begin to um, bring new content in. Really, the evolution of the same kinds of businesses, like you know, if you think about the genesis of Netflix, originally they just aggregated content. You think about uh, you know Amazon Prime or Hulu. Like there's a natural evolution that goes from we're doing you know we're aggregating content. We're trying to have a great relationship with the consumer. We're trying to be valuable in the child's everyday life. And then once that consumer is there, what do you do to keep them and keep them engaged? So I think it's very logical that long-term you'll see not just the aggregation of content, but also the creation of content as well. And how, like one of the things that, that I think is so fascinating about everything you've got in Sandbox Kids now is the multiplicity of monetization methods. That was entirely unintentional alliteration, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. Like, you know, it, it, it seems like you, you, you sort of have just about every type of like consumer monetization yeah. in there. I mean, again, I suppose same type of question, like, do, do you think that is a, a necessary um, strategy for building a business in the kids space um, today? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think candidly, when we were fingerprint, we needed to be as commercially nimble as possible to try and maximize our partnerships. I mean, I think pretty much anybody in any business does that in the beginning. But you get to a point where you really have to focus your efforts. You focus your efforts on what are the things that are going to work work the most. And, you know, I tend to think about our monetization model as it's actually fairly simplistic. You know, we sell subscriptions to families. I mean, that's that's what we do. But how do we get to the subscription place is a little bit of a circuitous route because we do B2C through the app store and direct through the web. We do 
B2B2C where we work with distribution partners like a T-Mobile or a Sprint or a Telefonica to distribute the product. And then we do B2B where we're actually sort of licensing our product to a third party like we do with, have done with Verizon where they are then selling it. And, you know, we, we have invested a lot in making our platform easy to be sold by partners because we see that that's sort of central to the way the model has to work. And so, but fundamentally, when we think about monetization, the very first thing we think about is, can I make the product engaging and sticky and churn resistant? Like right. that is fundamental to the whole monetization strategy and everything else is just the noise required to get to a place where we can sell the product. Right. Um, right. You know, and it's, it, it's interesting because, you know, the one thing we have never done is we've never done consumables or in-app purchases or microtransactions in the history of what we do at fingerprint. And, you know, the, the kids category has sort of moved into a place where there's three dominant monetization schemes. One is subscription and that's kind of dominant for most kinds of services. The second is like the in-app purchase and consumables model, which is, you know, primarily like a gaming industry legacy. And some of the biggest products per played by kids are actually, you know, with consumables and digital, digital items and, and so forth. And that's a big part of the business. But in other parts of the world, advertising is really dominant. And, you know, the, in some parts of the world, Asia in, in particular, the consumer, the parent seems to look at, you know, digital experiences with advertising, just like they look at TV with advertising and they figure if my kid is seeing ads on TV, they can see ads in the game. And advertising is quite a big model for them. The biggest change happening today is we're seeing this sort of shift to, I call them micro subscriptions where people can subscribe for an hour, for a day, for very small pieces of time. So in a lot of markets of the world, I think we're gonna see this sort of micro trend, this micro subscription thing happen because people don't always have credit cards or they don't have the desire to pay recurring $5 a month, but they might be willing to buy five hours a month you know, that kind of thing. And so, so I see sort of this shift here to micro subscriptions plus advertising that will happen, um, you know, quite differently in different geographical areas. Very interesting. Um, we've seen a ton of capital recently go into uh, kids' financial services, wallets and banking and things like that. I'm curious whether you sort of think about that from with with your sandbox hat on now. Like, do you think there 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 becomes some sort of verticalization of like the wallets and the financial services and all the content, or you think that'll stay separate, or, or do do you see any interplay at all there? First of all, it's 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 worth saying. You know, a lot of people have asked questions about. Uh, do do I think that the financial services business is, you know, sort of validating the kids' business as an important segment? Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is that, like, these financial investors 
their only interest is in making money in the financial sector. Like mm. kids are irrelevant. Like they're just looking at them. Kids are irrelevant from the perspective of it's not kids per se. It's the fact that most kids under 18 are not banked. You know, they have no finance. They don't have, they, they don't have a wallet. They don't have a banking relationship. And so the financial markets have been super smart at looking at kids that are every aspect of their life is already gamified you know they're tracking their homework they're tracking their fit fitness they're tracking their levels so why not gamify the money management and financial things so so i actually think <laughs> like the mission of teaching kids about money and teaching them how to save and how to invest and how to manage their money is really laudable and i do think it's possible that we could wake up you know five years from now and there is something that is is completely established like a pattern for how kids pay for things that is um that is you know well established and everybody understands it i mean you've seen the incredible of course you know last generation it was like paypal was the way now venmo you know peer-to-peer -peer paying is the way so we can only ask like what will be the next way if we've if we've uh, trained a whole generation of kids to, to <clears throat> about money and how to how to use cards or you know peer to peer paying or whatever. Like, what's the next generation? Yeah, and that's yeah. really interesting. Um, you know, one of the things you and I often talk about is why the major technology companies haven't done more in the kids space. Do you feel like looking back over the last few years, you know, through the through the fingerprint journey, that sort of sentiment or attitudes have changed much or at all in, within the, the, the big technology companies? I think, well, let me put it this way. I think there's a recognition by the big technology uh, companies that kids media consumption and technology consumption is growing at a much more rapid rate than it is for adults you know because they're consuming 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 and um you know i think i mean there's some statistic that says that like kids between 12 and 18 they're you know using technology slash media screen time, like eight or nine hours a day in the West. So, so it would be impossible if you were a major platform company, not to look at that and say, how do I get a piece of that? Um, you know, and how do I, how, how do I monetize that? So, so I think like as a sector, it's a very interesting sector because of the media use. But um, I think, what we have primarily seen is that the big platform companies have invested more in trying to make the internet and kids services safe than they have in actually trying to make kids services and products themselves. And so um, what I mean by that is, you know, if you look at YouTube, they took a ton of heat for 
uh, predatory advertising practices and challenges around advertising for kids. So what did they do? They created YouTube Kids and stripped the advertising out of it, and then they could check off the box. Okay, we made it. We made it safe for kids. You've seen Facebook try and do Facebook Messenger for kids because they recognize millions of kids on Facebook. I got to solve that. Now they're working on Instagram for kids. They got to solve that. So and then. You know, and you've seen Apple come out with all their, you know, parenting screen time tools. Um, we just saw a couple of weeks ago, Microsoft came out with their uh, Microsoft Edge, like kids channel, Samsung has kids mode, et cetera. So, so what you see is that most of the investments that are being made by the big platform companies are more of a recognition of millions of kids using our products, let's try and make them as safe as possible because it's the right thing to do. And that's how the investments have been, as opposed to why don't I go out and try and make a product that's built from the, uh, the, the ground up that's actually for children and makes kids online experience better or whatever. So, and you sort of see that with Netflix for kids, Amazon kids, uh, you know, the content companies have actually invested more in creating products that are just for kids, but the platform companies, it's all about kids' safety. And, you know, we know they're here, let's make it safe for them. That's a really interesting differentiation. Um, and when you think about, uh, I suppose, the content creators, uh, today, so you know, be it, uh, I suppose, you know, game developers, content creators, anything like that. Do you feel the kids' content ecosystem is healthier today than it was before? Is it like, is it easier for a kids' content creator of of whatever shape or form to 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 be sustainable today? You know, that's a that's that's a really tough question to ask to answer um if we look at the game companies it's really a haves and have nots right you know so if you are roblox minecraft fortnite it's it's feast or famine you're doing if you're either that or you're probably nowhere um because it's very difficult if you're not highly resourced to um, to make a big game happen in the kids space, um, in the videos, and it's and it's very difficult for independent developers to really make it, particularly, you know, to get to get discovered in the app store, to get have success on the monetization front in the app store. It's difficult and takes expertise for a kids company, and with all the changes in the advertising rules, et cetera, um, and all the changes that Apple is making, it's even harder. You know, if Apple's the best monetizing platform, the changes around advertising attribution, et cetera, and uh, is is more and more difficult for for co kids content creators on the on the game side. On the video side, it's a little different because it's you know, this is like the golden age of content. You know, you've got Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, YouTube, all offering, you know, big budgets to premium content creators to create content for their platforms. And so from that perspective, it's great. And there's never been more 
uh, desire for kids' video content than ever before. But the flip side to that is you had many, many video creators who were making millions on YouTube through advertising. With all the changes in YouTube advertising models, they're now left to go out and find other distribution methods and other ways that they can monetize their content beyond just advertising. And so, um, you know, you're seeing you're 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 seeing that that previously uh, content creators who were really dominant on YouTube are now licensing their content out to other platforms, and they're you know needing to be much more nimble. So. I, so it's a long-winded way of saying, I think it's a little bit of the haves and have-nots. Like, I think it's very hard to be in the middle right now as a content creator. But if you're making great content, chances are there's an outlet for it. But it's mm. it's difficult. Mm, mm, mm. And do, I mean, do you the think... Thing, the one thing I would say, add to this is, you know, you... We've seen a bunch of companies come about, uh, like Pocket Watch and Moonbug are two good examples of them that, you know, have recognized that there is fantastic original content being created on YouTube and for the streamers, and that that co the content can be built into big brands and licensed to you know, toy makers, movie makers, et cetera. And, you know, there's there's definitely quite an effort there. So I think that you'll see that the best independent content creators, their content will get found and ultimately they'll be able to monetize it beyond just the video. And that's that's probably the real play. Hmm. Um, when you think about, uh new content and new IP being created. Uh, I was discussing this actually on, on, on a, a recent episode with uh, Seema Zargami, uh, who ran Nickelodeon. And we were, we were talking about Roblox and about whether Roblox represents ultimately a new IP or a new platform, or whether it's being consumed fundamentally as both so she she was making the point that you know it's been it's been many years since there's been a huge breakout kids ip hit right paw patrol um pat the pig etc and roblox has really stepped in even though it is it is not an ip in and of itself but it essentially has assumed the mantle of you know kids attention as a as, as a as a as a piece of content i suppose you call it do you, like, do you think that Roblox is a completely new paradigm in the kids space, or or is it it sort of you know the the same kind of thing that 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 we've seen before? Yeah, it's interesting because Robot Blocks is, I mean, at its most essential, it's like YouTube for games, right? Um, it's it's like if if YouTube and Lego had a baby that's what Roblox would be. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so what's interesting about it is that it's become an IP that stands for kids' imagination and creativity, right? Where, where it's not story-driven, right? So it's not story-driven with char characters per se, where kids are 
focused on the characters and the story. They're creating the story with their games and they're experiencing other people's creations. So in many ways, it's a lot more like YouTube or TikTok from that perspective. Um, but I think that um, it is it is a it is an IP in and of itself that stands for you know creativity and sharing and um, you know it it is in my mind sort of the biggest monster hit of you know recent times and you know I think for every kid that loves Lego and there are a gazillion of them um, Roblox is the next sort of logical extension and and I, I would say you know when I worked at Lucasfilm uh, Lego Star Wars was launched and you know there was a lot of questions about whether the consumer would want to to mash up two things that they love so much like you know does anybody want a Lego Darth Vader well it turns out everybody wants a Lego Darth Vader right and um and everybody wants to be able to create their own characters and morph the Star Wars IP into, into Lego. And I see the same exact thing with Roblox, that Roblox means the ability to create and morph uh, to your own, your own desires and share it with your friends. And I think that's, that in and of itself is, is something new. Mm. The, um, we, I'm gonna change gears completely here. Um, you and I both get uh, lots of interesting inbound from startup kid tech companies. Um, and I often find that it, it, it takes being in a sector, I don't know, maybe three or four years before you really start to understand what it's actually about. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm curious for people listening to the show who are, you know, looking at getting into the space or investing into the space or things like that. What, what are sort of some of those essential pieces of wisdom that you have learned about this about this sector uh, during the fingerprint journey? I hate that I have to answer this question this way because all of my creative friends and the people that I've worked with for so long would hate that I would answer this question this way. But you know, in the digital space where you're not just building a product and putting it on marketing it and putting it on the shelf of Walmart and hoping that it sells and you can launch it and forget it. In a, in a world where you've got to get somebody to try your product and they have to love it enough to want to pay for it and keep paying for it. The only thing that matters is making a product that is so engaging that people are willing to keep paying for it. You know, that that you can't just make something that you think is great and, and get it featured by Apple and put it in the market and hope for the best. You have to constantly be evolving it and making it, making it work better and making the customer love it even more. And people in ed tech tend to, many of them, or, or kids tech tend to, like they fall in love with their IP and they get super excited about their idea and they're not thinking about the fact that like their product is essentially a pilot for whatever they're trying to do. And whether that pilot gets picked up is going to depend on their ability to respond to what the consumer is telling them and showing them by their play. And sometimes what you think you're building is completely different than 
what you end up building because the consumer is the only person that matters. And that's quite different than the film business or, you know, other kinds of categories where, you know, in the film business, the director might get to make all of the decisions to put the movie out. Um, and, you know, it's either going to work or it's not going to work, but it's a one shot deal. The digital space is so different than that. And, you know, so when I get these calls, I've always asked them not just to tell me about what they're building, but, you know, what is your monetization scheme? How are you going to talk to consumers? What are you expecting to learn here? What are your plans for after you, after you launch this? And, you know, 99% of the time, it's not thought out at all because they're just focused on getting the product out the door. That is some real wisdom. I uh, hope everyone listening takes that in. Um, Nancy, last question uh, for you, which is actually a future-looking, future-facing one. Um, what are your predictions for, or this is probably a little bit unfair because I didn't ask you ahead of time, but however, um, what, what predictions do you have uh, for the kids space? over the next couple of years? Is there anything that you sort of see on the horizon and that you feel is, is particularly likely? Huh. Well, look, I mean, this, this is more of like a macro thing, but um, I do think that COVID has changed everything about how people think about uh, communication in the digital world. And so, um, you know, kids, most kids only text, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, I think you've seen this huge increase in kids using Zoom for school, but also using Zoom with their friends to play games, to have different kinds of activities. Same thing with FaceTime. And it's become very normal to want to actually see the person that you're talking to because we are more isolated. And I actually think that, you know, I hear from all of my friends and my coworkers, like their kids are FaceTiming and Zooming and playing games and have come up with all kinds of interesting ways to interact via video. And so, I'm actually, I actually think that we're going to see that kind of evolve into new types of play patterns and new types of ways that people can consume videos. So, so um, you know, I actually think we're going to see like a complete explosion in the notion of like watch parties and interactive experiences that and there's a lot of things out mm. there but there's no one dominant thing but I think that like we like the pandemic has improved video communication and the di desire to do video there's a bunch of products out there that allow people to share the watching of movies or sports or even play games I think the next generation is going to be truly interactive experiences while we're both doing the same thing um, and that could be kids watching videos together where, you know, there's communication, like what's the next generation of 
watch party type things that really bring people together in a way that feels unique and social. Um, and again, there's a lot of effort in these ways, but I in in this area. But I I think I think I'm adding one and one and one. Like I'm saying, let's take the the video piece plus from a communication standpoint plus the the viewership and you already see it in games like it's been happening in video games for a long time i think all entertainment is going to go there and so you and i can watch the game and we can talk about it and we can bring people in and then you know that's going to create all kinds of new ways to advertise and reach the market and and everything because you know we haven't talked about this at all but um you know, the whole media dynamic from, from people watching network TV to cable to now streaming has completely changed the whole like TV advertising landscape. So I expect that technology will, as technology like we're talking about evolves, there will need to be all kinds of new ways to market to people. And that advertising need will drive all kinds of new experiences for the watching of it. Video, etc. How it all plays, how it all plays out, I don't know. But th that's what I see. That it's like a, it's it's the future. I think. I think there were probably five different startup ideas in that answer. That was excellent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, not, probably that... not what you probably not what you expected. But I, I I think like I think that there will be books written about all of the ideas and all of the like completely out there play patterns communication productivity all the things that come out of what happens if you lock down the world for a year but with nothing but their technology like i think there's going to be some really really amazing things that come out of this that we've never even thought of before I totally agree. Um, Nancy McIntyre, CEO of Sandbox Kids, uh, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Kid Tech. Thanks, it's been super fun. Can't wait to listen. <laughs>